Today in the late afternoon, early evening, I'd gone for a walk and I, I was so struck by how beautiful it was out there. I don't know if anybody went outside today and there was the, uh, still the leaves, they just, they get to me. <laughs> and then the, the changing of light as the sun was setting was, uh, it, it, it was like I, I felt like my heart was being torn open by the beauty in some way. So touching. And maybe some of you have been experiencing that out there. I mean, it, it's a beautiful evening tonight, don't you think? And again, it, it really is this uh, beautiful evening on this planet Earth. And, and yes, a, a fundamental part of this path and this practice is to, uh, is to really learn this capacity to be with challenges and to begin to notice how challenges arise in terms of how the mind constructs those challenges in your mind, because that's the, so much the key to freedom. And another significant aspect of this path and this practice is opening to beauty. I've mentioned this before. And really, these are quite interwoven. I think this is just as important and sometimes just as challenging as opening up to the difficulties. They're quite intimately intertwined with how we navigate challenge. And what I find in in my own life, my own practice, it's a skill. It's a training to learn how to open to beauty. And I'm going to be talking about particular flavors of beauty tonight. And yet, when it lands, I think it in it of itself can be quite transformative. And one example of this that I want to start is uh, about this great Tibetan uh, Rinpoche, uh, Adi Rinpoche. He's uh, um, the teacher of, some of you might know, Sokni Rinpoche, who was uh, quite popular in the States. And... Uh, he, um, as a result of the Chinese invasion of Tibet, he was uh, imprisoned for 15 years in a Chinese prison during that time. And before he was literally captured, he was on the run for two years with uh, a lot of his community. They were trying to escape uh, Tibet. And during that time, they were often, and, and I mean this uh, quite literally too, they were often being chased by the Chinese and sometimes you know, shot out and hunted down. They really wanted to, to capture him, especially since he was a reincarnate Lama. And if, uh, uh, if that meant killing him, that was fine. So this was two years of his life. It was uh, a challenging time. And this was before being imprisoned. And yet, what he says about this time is really so striking. He says, during the two years that I was on the run, fleeing from one place after another, from time to time, I would pass through an 
uh, an area where the early masters of the Kagyu lineage and other great masters of the past had stayed. And the Kagyu lineage is just one of the lineages in Tibetan Buddhism. And high up in the mountains, I would sometimes visit retreat hermitages that were blessed by the great yogis. Arriving at such places, I felt, okay, I'm being chased right now. But so what? Let whatever happens, happens. I mean, it was so wonderful to be able to visit such places. (laughs) Isn't that great? I mean, here he is. People are trying to kill him, and here he's going through this landscape that that is enlivening his heart. And just being able to visit these places that were so important to his spiritual practice, he was able, right? He was able to open his heart to beauty in the midst of serious challenge. And for me, I hold him in my heart because of this. It's like, oh, that, that's what it is to be a practitioner. Can you find the beauty even in the challenges? And again, I, I just want to say it's, it's a whole process around, around this, this art. And some of it is because of how our hearts and minds and our physiology function around beauty, around the wholesome, you could say, or the good. There's a striking poem by the poet Alison Luderman called Confessing to Happiness. I think she she speaks to this challenge. She says, I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I just love that as a first line as a poem. (laughs) I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. Have you noticed this, that sometimes our heart is scared to confess to happiness or beauty or such a great description in that last line of the poem of contentment, wanting what I have. It's the the quiet or the sunset or the chance to do walking meditation, meditation. It can be challenging to open to that. And and maybe you might have a mind that's similar to mine. You know, it's, it's a mind skilled in not wanting what I have and wanting what I don't have. <laughs> Opening to beauty is something different. It goes against these habitual tendencies like those. So it's a skill, and it can be challenging to let let beauty in. 
And I want to acknowledge sometimes it's because of habitual tendencies in our physiology. You know, if, if a physiology is kind of, has a continual kind of slight, slight uh, like the threat response, the response to threat is slightly on, feeling slightly on guard, which is really common in modern times. We have, you know, mechanisms like phones and things like that that jack up the, the activation. And then when the system begins to relax and savor a pleasant experience, it can actually feel like a threat to the system because, because the system isn't used to that. It's like, oh, I've learned how to be safe by being a little bit up, a little bit guarded. And then when the system settles, it's like, ooh, is, is this actually safe? So it's, it's allowing the space to take some time with that. So I, I, again, it's a, it's a process, it's a training. To train to open to beauty in a skillful way. Training our physiology to have the capacity to be with beauty. And as a side note to the main reflections I want to give to you, I I do want to acknowledge that especially in the super tough times, I think it can be really helpful to orient to where do you find beauty, especially externally. We're in a beautiful environment and sometimes in tough times, that's the thing that can bring a sense of resource, of stability, just like how Adi Rinpoche was able to find that. And where I want to spend most of my time, though, is to share with you about this training of opening the beauty in a very specific realm, and that's the meditative realm. And I'll be doing this through offering you reflections on the Buddha's teaching on the seven factors of awakening, which to me is is just a list of beauty. That's all it is, (laughs) which makes it easier for me, just because these lists sometimes, they can feel foreign and dry. But when I slow down with the feeling sense of these qualities of heart, it's like, oh, oh, this is beauty like it was on my walk today. And that's what the seven factors of awakening are. There are seven beautiful qualities of the heart that arise within this practice that we're doing here together on this retreat. So what are these seven factors of awakening? these beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And I'll be putting this on the board. If your mind's like mine, like any, any list above three, oh, stuff, you can tell I've had a challenge on this path, right? There's a lot of lists. So I'm sympathetic if your mind is like mine. This is seven, it's pretty big. So the first one, mindfulness. And maybe you've, you've touched her beauty at times. And then the second one, Uh, sometimes translated as investigation. I'm going to use the word curiosity and I'll I'll go over why I'm using that. So mindfulness. Maybe you notice that the mind has had some curiosity. Energy. The energy to practice. Joy. Joy around the practice or delight. Tranquility. Maybe you had a few tastes of that. Concentration, or the Pali word, which I'll explain a little bit more, is samadhi. And then the last one is equanimity, 
And what I'm going to be inviting you to, to begin to notice is, is that these are probably already sprouting up at times in your meditation practice, even if it's ever so briefly, ever so faintly. It's like, like the tender shoot of a flower emerging in the spring. They're there, and they need, they need your recognition of them, even if they're small and tender and just beginning to sprout. And another reason I want to share this with you is that when you start to sense into, especially on a longer retreat, you start to get a sense that we're cultivating much more than just mindfulness. It's like this whole tapestry of beauties unfolding in our practice. And it can be so wondrous and wonderful to start to touch that and to open to it. And so tonight, I want to share with you reflections about how to specifically practice with this teaching of the seven factors of awakening. And I'm going to want to boil it down to two skills. The first skill is recognizing them. And we're hopefully going to, we're going to go through a little experiment to get a sense of this, to see how, hopefully, how this can be quite accessible for you. And the second skill is the nourishing of them or nurturing them and how to to do this. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, the image I want to give to you for this is a experience I had, what was it, let's see, I guess last year, maybe the year before, I was in a self-retreat with my partner, and we were in a remote, this kind of remote wilderness area. And it was a juniper pinion tree forest, early spring, and we were there after two consecutive years of severe drought in the Southwest. And at the end of our retreat, we do this after, at the end of all of our retreats, we do these ceremonial offerings of merit, and we do that through uh, offerings of water, which is both traditional in the Theravada tradition and so apt for the Southwest. And uh, at the end, it was just the last couple of days, there were these tiny little flowers that were beginning to emerge from the dry earth. And it was so touching to see them. And I noticed if I was walking around, I would miss them. And then when I started to become sensitive to them, just the small shoots, it was like they were all over the place. And there was something so powerful about just taking the time to water them. Just the little water to give them a chance in the drought. It was just those two skills to recognize, to see them. They're all over the place, I promise. And to water them, to nourish. And I want to point out these skills are especially important if your heart has been drought-stricken in the past. The flowers are actually still coming up. Can you see them in the dry earth and water them? So let's dive in. You ready? So how to specifically practice.
In just a minute, I'm going to briefly go over each of the seven factors and explain them a bit. And, and I am going to keep the descriptions of them quite simple to make it accessible. Because sometimes with these lists, it's like, you know, there's so many like pages on pages of describing these. And, and sometimes the more description we get, the more far off they can feel. And, and that's what I want to point out is that then this teaching can seem like it's so beyond where we're at in our meditation. And I hope to dispel that notion. That's my hope for tonight, to show you how close this teaching is. And I just want to express my deep gratitude for the Venerable Analio. It was hearing his particular way of, of introducing practitioners to the seven factors of awakening that I found so helpful because he wanted to keep it so practical and accessible. And yes, there's a whole range and depth to them, which I hope at times you can taste. And it's going to be really having the sensitivity just to the tiny little sprouts like I was trying to do out there in the wilderness. And it's going to be within your meditative experiences. So again, two skills, to recognize to nurture them or nourish them. And I want to point out, for those of you familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, um, you can say these are two out of the three, I call them three skills, we find in that discourse about the awakening factors. And if you don't know that discourse, it really doesn't matter. I just want to point that out if that's something close to your heart. Okay, the first skill, recognizing them. I'm going to go over them and then we're going to we do a little experiment, see if we can get just a little bit of a taste of this. Mindfulness. Simple. It's that, that activity that's happening right now that knows that hearing is happening. That ability to be aware of the sound of my voice arising and passing away. It's right here, right? It's simple. So we've been exploring. We got that one. And then curiosity is just being curious about some of the, the textures of, for example, how the voice does arise and then disappear, or how it might be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. But I want to point out, you don't have to go chasing elsewhere. It's just right here, right? There's mindfulness. There's the sound of my voice. It might have a certain feeling tone. Well, it's kind of neutral. Well, it's pleasant. Uh, it's kind of unpleasant. So it's the curiosity that's there. And then sometimes just with noticing those, you might notice within those, within just the, like the experience of a sound, there's some energy. There's some, a little bit of energy to practice. Like if you're not asleep right now, there's some energy. <laughs> Look, Remember, we're just looking for the tiny sprouts of this. Just a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of mindfulness. Joy when you start to get a feeling of, of those, there might be some joy of like, oh, this, this is a pretty cool practice. Oh, nice. This is inter- interesting. And sometimes the cool thing about the seven factors of awakening, if they're not there, maybe you get a sense of these first couple, the mindfulness and the investigation, the curiosity and the energy. It's okay to invite joy. To be like, oh, yeah, it's okay to be here. Yeah, let's get some delight. <laughs> so invitations are Okay. In the seven factors of awakening. You don't have to wait for the sprouts. You can invite them a little bit. So some, a little bit of joy, delight. There might be some 
tranquility just hanging out here, right? It's just that sense of calm to keep that simple like that. And then some concentration or samadhi. And this is what I want to slow down with and kind of expand because there can be some confusions about this. And to really show the, the spectrum of what um, of concentration or samadhi. I, I have a, a little bit that, that translation concentration can be misleading. So let's slow down just with this factor and then I'll get to equanimity. So what is samadhi? This comes from the teacher, Robert Bay, and I appreciate his definition. Samadhi is some degree of collectedness and unification of the mind and body and a sense of well-being. So there's two qualities here. There's a sense of well-being. There's some ease here. And the mind is collected around some experience, whether it be like the sound of my voice or the sight of me or the feeling of the body or the breath. And the way I describe this is to give uh, one way of understanding this is to imagine this room, that this room is kind of like a, a simile or an analogy for how our minds work. So if you imagine you're in a room like this and all of you kind of represent like different parts of the mind. And when everyone is paying attention to me, the speaker, we could say there's a lot of samadhi because all the parts of the mind are now collected around one experience, the speaker. That's the, the kind of the far end of samadhi. It's unified, right? It's unified around one experience. And then if there was a kind of a group of you in the back over there talking about this or that and another group over here talking about that and maybe another group over there. And then the rest of you were collected around hearing me speak, that's still pretty good samadhi in terms of my, my <laughs> variation, right? The mind isn't completely connected around it, not all of the aspects of the mind, but most of it is. So there's still samadhi. So it's not like there is samadhi or there's not, there's a spectrum. Maybe there's now just a, even more conversations going on, but maybe let's say 10 or 20% of you is unified around the experience of me speaking. There's still samadhi. (laughs) We're looking for the sprouts of it to see that there's some unification of the mind. And what's also important about this is how we cultivate samadhi, which is kind of quite similar to, it kind of intertwines with the seven factors of awakening. Like if you're in a group of... uh, people and and your job is to collect their attention, there's two basic ways you can do that. You can yell at them and threaten them, which actually is super effective, but incredibly brittle. Or you can invite them. Give them a few cookies. sense of well-being, ease, (laughs) relaxation. And then there's a collecting because there's a kind of like a a sense of settling and safety and interest. And then that kind of attention, right, it's so much more stable and steady. It's making sense because you can cultivate samadhi in a, this is what we usually, this is what, 
what Tuweri was talking about. That's thriving. <laughs> but it's so brittle. I suggest the latter rather than the former. <laughs> Maybe you have a mind like mine. Sometimes our minds can still think that the former is going to work somehow. So the, this is how samadhi works. It's, it's kind of allowing the attention to come to rest with a facet of experience. And again, we're looking for the teeny sprout of this. If I can kind of feel the breath for a half, for just for an in-breath, or I feel a foot on the ground, there's a little samadhi there. There has to be. Or the mind would be instantly off it because the mind isn't unified in some way. So notice the, the, the teeny flowers of samadhi that are there. And then equanimity, and for the intensive purposes of this, it's just there's some okayness with how experience is. Or maybe you notice that the, the heart and mind really isn't okay with experience, but there's an okayness with the not okayness. It's like, wow, there's a lot of aversion, but yeah, this is what the mind does. Yeah, that's the way it is. There's still, still there. So to notice the emerging of that flower there. Okay, so I I want to invite you to, this will be brief, just maybe allowing your attention to come inward here. Let's let's see if we can get a little taste of these. And you might have done that already, you know, as I was speaking, but let's, let's see if we can do this. Just allowing the attention to come inward. Allowing for a little bit of arriving here, feeling the body or... Allowing for a settling downward. And then we'll utilize the sound of the bell here, just being mindful of the activity of hearing. And you notice there's mindfulness there in hearing the bell. A little curiosity, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Or it could be a curiosity about perception. Is, is this one sound or many sounds? You might notice a little bit of energy, maybe a little bit of delight. Calm. Is there a little bit of calm right now as you stick with the activity of hearing? There it is. Tranquility.
samadhi, just a little bit of collectedness around the sound of the bell or the sound of my voice. And maybe a little bit of equanimity. There's okayness here. Okay. Were you able to see that there's these little flowers there? Just right there? Give me something, at least. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> okay. So I want to point out they're, they're right here. It's, it's, it really is like this field of teeny flowers, and it's like, okay, can I just be sensitive to them? And it can be just in a moment of hearing the sound of the bell. Sometimes with the seven factors of awakening, it's like, okay, I need to get in a really deep place, and then I'm going to check them out. No, 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 no. We want to catch them when they're light like this. And what you, once you do this, what I'm going to invite you to do this is just repetitively throughout the day, just every so often, checking out. There are flowers here. And at times, it might feel like these qualities are kind of just like in the mix of the meditative experience. Like sometimes when I go through just that, it's like, oh yeah, they're kind of like here and I... I always call them mindfulness, but it's like, oh yeah, there's a whole tapestry that I'm kind of feeling here. So sometimes it has that feeling to it. And other times, if you really have that list with you, it might feel like they build on each other. Like sometimes when I recognize mindfulness, it's like, oh, and then there's some curiosity because I'm recognizing mindfulness. I'm curious about that. I'm curious about the seven factors of awakening. And then I have some energy about practice oh yeah, there's some energy here. And it goes on and on from there. And then from the energy, you might find the delight. And then, oh yeah, there is, you know, there is some calm here. Okay, I'm kind of restless, but I'm not completely restless. Oh yeah, samadhi, and then equanimity. Yep. So they can build on one another. And again, just to, for those of you who are, you know, I've read the Anapanasati Sutta. This is a discourse, one of the Buddha's discourse on the mindfulness of breathing. In this discourse, it's interesting, this is how the seven factors of awakening are described. It's like there's this process of them building on each other in, in this way. You might want to check it out and to allow for both of these flavors here just to become curious about this. And then... I'm taking some time in terms of how I recognize to, to get familiar with these seven and then to recognize them individually. Like sometimes I'm just going through the seven, kind of get a sense of the here. I'm kind of getting a, used to how they kind of feel and how I identify them. I might, as I said, invite a few. Sometimes for me, it's like there's a lot of tranquility, but like, where's the joy? And it's like, okay, I can invite my heart to be, uh, to delight in this in some way. Or maybe the curiosity isn't so strong. So then it's kind of inviting that to be here. So that's one way, tasting them individually as you do this. And remember, it can be within one experience. It could be within the feeling of the breathing. As you experience the feeling of the breathing, around a sound, as you're doing walking meditation. 
and then start to taste like the whole, what I'd call gestalt of them or the whole, whole felt sense of like when the seven factors of awakening are kind of swimming around, those flowers are kind of around. And a way to get a sense of this, I, I really appreciated when Matthew uh, mentioned this, like, you know, mind states, maybe we'd better to call them body states, these different qualities. And I find that very helpful for my practice. On a more nuanced level, and I'm not going to go into this, but I want to mention it, is that sometimes once you really make friends with them, you can get a sense of when they're stronger and weaker, and there's an art of kind of balancing them. Maybe we can go over that maybe in morning instructions at some point. Just doing two, two skills. So this is the recognizing them, getting familiar with them, allowing the definitions to stay simple, allowing them to reveal themselves to you. You might get a few more dimensions to them as you continue with them. They love being seen and they'll show you more when you give them your attention. (laughs) A little bit more specifics. You might practice this, you know, sometimes the easy places when the mind is feeling a bit more easeful and steady And I mean just for a couple minutes where it's like, okay, I'm just here a little bit with the breath or the feet as I'm doing walking meditation. And then just in a relaxed way, see if you can recognize some of these seven to go through that. And then again, maybe place some invitations if the invitations are needed. And what's important around this is ease and relaxation. Hopefully some of you got a sense of like, It's just recognizing. It doesn't take effort. It's just the recognition of them. I also want to point out, often when I bring something new into my meditation practice, or fairly new, in the trying to get it, my my mind will often kind of tighten and contract. It's like, okay, I want it. Seven factors of awakening. Like, I'm going to get this down. And I want to point out that's normal. Like that's what it is to learn. (laughs) So I just want to normalize that. Like, okay, so that's going to happen. It's common. And then you just drop it for a while and then come back to it. What I want to caution you from, if you're interested in this teaching, is that sometimes what can happen is that we engage in something We feel the frustration because the mind tightens and contracts. And then we go to, oh, this doesn't work for me. I think I'm going to go back to the way I always meditate. And then what we're we're, um, depriving ourselves of is learning new skills in our meditation. And to learn a new skill, I got to be willing to make a lot of mistakes I don't know if there's anybody here that got on a bike and was able to ride the first time. I wasn't. <laughs> it's just a process. And when you have that, that sense of like, okay, this is, this is what it takes to, to learn this, is I need to have patience and kind of equanimity for the ups and downs of this. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, equanimity, cool. Like, oh, that's one of them. There it is. <laughs> Just point out like they can sneak up on you, even like a Dharma talk. So just like that sensitivity to them. 
So this is the first skill, recognizing them. And then the second skill, how do you nourish these factors of awakening? Because they're so important for the unfolding of this path. And the first way we've just gone over, and I've already mentioned it, is that when you recognize them, they're more often, they will more often pop up. As I said, they love your attention. And when they get to your attention, they will blossom in a way to show their colors to you. That is the watering of them, the recognizing them. I want to say this is first and foremost. And then the second way is really wrapping back around to what I began with. The skill that I wanted to really come back to is the skill of opening to their beauty. The skill of beholding beauty. And there is a certain, for me, just a subtle shift to kind of beholding beauty, uh, beauty that, that kind of quality, that language pulls something out for me. What's it like at times when you're maybe doing walking meditation and there's some mindfulness there? Sometimes this is easier be quite honest, sometimes in the evening when the, the, the mindfulness is less energetic and the mind's maybe tired and quieter. This is why sometimes late night practice can be really so good. And there can be the sense of just like, oh, there is something beautiful about mindfulness. Oh, and I'm touching that. Not in the dramatic way of the sunset outside, but something more subtle that can really touch the heart. And then the same with, with the others, whether it's samadhi or tranquility, to, to touch them as these experiences of beauty. Just a couple of more things about beholding them as beauty. It really is like the process of, of lingering or savoring a fine piece of art, whether that be a, a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful painting. It's the opening of the heart in a particular way. And I want to point out this in itself is transformative. There's a There's a poem by the Austrian poet uh, uh, Rainier Maria Rilke. And in the poem, it's, a, it's an interesting poem. In the poem, Rilke is beholding this statue from ancient Greece, and it's a, it's a statue of Apollo. And it's just the torso of Apollo. That's the only thing that was remaining from the sculpture. And he's going through it, really describing how moving it is for him to behold this this piece of art to the point where it feels like the piece of art is calling him and calling him in a particular way, calling upon him to completely change his life. I think that's such an accurate description of the power of allowing beauty in. Beholding beauty begins to call upon us to transform our lives. And in the beholding of it, 
it does transform our lives. So just that, if you were to spend the rest of the retreat beholding these seven factors, even when they're so small and so subtle, to allow them to call upon you to change your life and to allow them to indeed change your life through their beauty. And it can give a different feeling sometimes. I'm not saying that this should be the feeling maybe all the time in your practice, but sometimes for me, there's something so different that happens when it's like, okay, I'm interested in the suffering and the end of suffering. Right? I'm down for that. I'm a Dharma teacher. <laughs> but sometimes to change the vision, going back to the, the first uh, talk I was giving, the aspiration of like, maybe my duty is just to behold beauty just to bring a little bit of beauty into the world by being with these qualities of heart. That's all. There's a power to that. Not for something, not to change anything, but just for the goodness of that in and of itself. There's a a poem by W.S. Merwin, which I feel like captures this so strongly. It's called Place. And I think he has this sense in this. He he says, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. So he says, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. What for? not for the fruit. The tree that bears the fruit is not the one that was planted. I want the tree that stands in the earth for the first time with the sun already going down and the water touching its roots in the earth full of the dead and the clouds passing one by one over its leaves. on the last day of the world, would you be willing to plant a tree, a flower, a quality of heart, because it's beautiful? Do you fear, feel how that can bring the heart alive and the power of that? There's a power to beauty. And that's the amazing thing about this practice is there's so much beauty that we're called upon to witness. Not just the challenges, but these little flowers, even in the drought-stricken earth.
So these qualities of heart, they lead to transformation. They lead to the healing of our hearts. They lead to awakening. That's why they're called the factors of awakening. There's a natural unfolding toward awakening because of these. You know, as the Buddha says about the factors of awakening, he says, practitioners, just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, inclines towards the east, so to a practitioner who cultivates, who nourishes, you could say, and recognizes these seven factors of awakening, they slant, they slope, they incline towards awakening, towards the freeing of the heart. And I think it also speaks to how there is this healing transformative quality to them if they have that quality. There's these interesting suttas, and I want to play you one of these because I think it's so traditional and so interesting about these other dimensions I want to talk about. For example, there are these bojanga suttas, these suttas of the factors of, of awakening. And one is uh, Mahamogalana is sick. And, and when he is sick, the, the Buddha comes and visits him and sings to him, probably chants, but it's a kind of singing to him, the seven factors of awakening. Makes sense, doesn't it? It uplifts the heart. And even more striking, the Buddha is sick one time and the Venerable Mahachanda uh, comes and visits him and, and the Buddha basically says, please, uh, Chanda, please sing to me, chant to me the seven factors of awakening. So you have this sutta of, of the, the Buddha also being chanted to, being sung to around these, to allow his heart to be filled with, with beauty, with something that's onward leading to awakening. So in light of this, the way I'd like uh, to end here, it's going to still be about 10 minutes or so. I'd I'd like to play you a chant. And thank you, Greg, for getting this going. I love that you primed sharing chants. To to play one of the chants of the um, uh, the Mahamogalanda uh, Bojanga Sutta. So it's the the Buddha singing, chanting to Mahamogalanda the seven factors of awakening. And I want to say a little bit about this way of learning the Dhamma, because I think it's really important. Um, I want to point out that the, the path that we're learning together, it's not only learned through technique and intellectual understanding, but really you could say like a somatic embodied understanding of it. So like through the heart, not just through the mind. And I I do want to acknowledge this kind of, you could say, a way of knowing that comes from hearing chants or being affected by them is a kind of knowing and understanding that has really been forced into the back seat of modernization. There's been a lot of connectingness with how colonization has worked too, kind of a, a killing off of different ways of knowing. That's a different talk though. 
and in the in the in in light of that, I think it's important for us to to allow our hearts to learn in these different ways. You remember, during the Buddhist time, there was no reading. And some uh, writers like David Abram talk about how reading really has separated us from so much. So to remember during the Buddhist time, a lot of the practice, if you were a practitioner, you were going to be around a lot of chanting, a lot of the singing of the Dhamma. This would be in in your whole the whole rhythm of your body from the repetition, hearing the cadences and rhythms of these teachings, not just the understanding of the words, but the rhythms. And the chant that I want to share with you, I wanted to just to compliment what Greg had shared with us. It's going to be a, actually a group of chanters. It's a it's a group from Malaysia. Uh, the uh, Sakya N chanting group to get this sense of kind of togetherness that can come with, with multiple voices as far as this goes. So if you want to take just a moment, I know we've been sitting for a little while. If you want to stand just for a minute here, just to give your body some relief, just so there can be some ease while you're listening to this, please don't be shy about that because I really do want to make sure there's some ease in the body so you can really allow this in before we finish uh, with this, so feel free to do that. Okay, and then maybe finding a a posture that feels easeful yet awake. And uh, I'm going to do my best to see if I can cue this up now. Just maybe allowing the attention to come inward as I cue this up. Oh, 
ยังปฏิสลานุติโตเยนายสมามหามุกลานุเอนุปสังกามิอุปสังกามิตัวปัญญเตอาสเนนิสิดินิสัจกุบังวะอายสมันตังมหามุกกลานังเอตดังโอชกัดชิตมุกกลานกัมนียังกัดชิยาปนียังกัดชิดุกกาเวเดนาปฏิกัมันตีโนอภิกัมันตีปฏิกัมโมสานังปัญญายตีโนอภิกัมโมตินมิบันเตกัมนียังนายปนียังบาลามีดุกกาเวเดนาอภิกัมันตีโนปฏิกัมันตีอภิกัมโมสานังปัญญายตินโนปฏิกัมโมติสัตติมิมุกัลลานบทจังกามายาสัมวัตคาตาบาวิตาบาหุลีกตาอภิญญายสัมโพดายนิบานายสัมวัตันติกัตเมสัตเตสัตติสัมบุตจังโกโคมกกัลลานมายาสัมมาดัคตุบาวิตุบาหุลีกตุอภิญญายสังโฆไดนิบานายสังวัตติดัมมะวิจยสังบุตจังโกโคมุกกัลลานมายาสัมมาคาตุบาวิตุบาหุลีกตุอภิญญายสัมโพดายนิบานายสัมวัตติวิริยสัมบุตยังโกโคมุกกัลลานมายาสัมมาคาตุบาวิตุบาหุลีกตุอภิญญายสัมโพดายนิบานายสัมวัตติปิติสัมบุตยังโกโคมุกกัลลานมายาสัมวัตกัตโตบาวิตโตบาหุลีกัตโตอภิญญายสัมโพดายนิบานายสัมวัตตติปัสสันติสัมบุตยังโกโคมุกกัลลานมายาสัมมาดะคาตุบาวิตุบาหุลีกัตุอภิญญายสัมโพดายนิบานายสัมวัตต
ติสมาธิสัมบุตยังโกโกมุกกัลลานมายาสัมมาจักขะตุบาวิตุบาหุลีกัตุอวิญญาญสัมบุตายนิมบานายสัมบัตตติอุปิคาสัมบุตยังโกโกมุกกัลลานมายาสัมมาดาคาตุบาวิตุบาหุลีกัตุอวิญญาสัมบุตายนิมบานายสัมวัตตติอิมิคุมุกกัลลานสัตตบุตยังกามายาสัมมาดาคาตาบาวิตาบาหุลีกัตาอวิญญาสัมบุตายนิบานาสัมบัตันติติตักบักบะบุตยังกาทังกสุตตบุตยังกาติอิดมะวุจบักวาอตมโนอายสมามหามุกัลลานุบาเกวโตบาสิตังอวินันดีวุตตายชายสมามหามุกัลลานุตัมหาอภากตตาปายนุชายสมโตมหามุเอเตนสัจจวัต